Today we'll be reading from Matthew, the uh, verses uh, 13 through 18. This is where Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by my flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The Word of God, the people of God. God. Alright, thank you Mark. So, who do you say that Jesus is? That's the question that we're going to be working ourselves into today. Um, so this is part of this series that we put together called Come, Follow Me. The idea is moving from membership to discipleship. So we started it last week, and what will continue for seven weeks, where we're going to look at as an example in Scripture from the life of Simon Peter and how he grew as a disciple. Last week we started this, he's fishing with his brother, right? Uh, Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is like, come follow me. So he leaves his nets and he goes, follow them. And then James and John are with their dad and the other hired men in their boats, and Jesus says the same thing and they follow. So Last week, what I wanted you to think about, one, is that you have been invited to follow God. You have this personal invitation from God, and He, he is saying, come and follow me. But we also talked about last week that, that all these guys had to leave something behind. So the question I left you with last week is, what is the net that you need to leave behind as you grow in your discipleship? As you're headed down this road as a disciple, what net, what thing from your past do you physically need to leave behind and walk away from as you're walking following Jesus now? And then today, we've got this passage that we call the Peter's Confession of Faith. So at some point, we've all been offered the invitation to come follow. We get to make the decision, right? And it's a daily decision, guys. This is not like the one and done. Like, yes, I was a follower of Jesus in um, 1982. Well, now, are you a follower of Jesus now? Alright? Because it's a daily thing. Pick up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus says. Amen. But then we also, we get to this today with Peter. Peter gets to confess who he is. He gets to say who he sees that Jesus is. And we're going to work our way through who do we say that Jesus is. Next week, we're going to talk about failure. Mm, right? And I know it's only week three. We're like, can we not wait a while before we have to fail? But see, that's the life of discipleship. I mean, Jesus says, follow me. Peter's like, boom, net done. And he's following Jesus, right? And then he's like, who do you say that I am? Peter's like, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He gets a new name and everything. It's like, yes, way to go. And then next week we're going to read, and they're like, hey, do you know Jesus? He's like, no, dude, I've never even seen him before. <laughs> Not once. Not twice. But three times, right? So it's, it's this denial. And the point I want to make with that is we all fail we're going to fail in life. We're going we're gonna to have times where we do something and we look back on it and say, wow, what was I thinking, man? 
can I do that? And God's grace is going to be right there for us in that moment. Okay? And there's going to be this beautiful gift of repentance and restoration and arms wide open and drawing us right back in and pulling us up on the lap again. And we're going to, we're going to start moving again. Okay? But at some point it might happen. That's why we want to go ahead and talk about it next week. Now today, though, where we are is this beautiful confession of faith by Peter. So this series, like we said, is focused on discipleship. I don't think discipleship is something that you, you do. Right? Discipleship is who you are. You are somehow being formed as a disciple of Jesus today. And our goal as we go through this, we put is moving from membership to discipleship. Now, here this fall, we have this wonderful thing in the United Methodist Church called Charge Conference. And Charge Conference, we get a, a book of, of reports to fill out, like that big, and we have to go through and put all these numbers in. And it's important, it's part of our, our tradition and our heritage. It helps us see where we've been so we can determine where God is leading us. But one of the things we have to put down are membership numbers. And that's always a tough one, because right now the membership of this church says it's 166. Which means 166 people have at some point stood here and joined the church. Now, membership is important to me not because it's a number. Membership is important because there's vows that you take when you become a member of a church. If you're not familiar with those, if you forgot them, grab a hymnal, take it home with you, and read the service of reception into the local church. All the vows are in there, and then bring the hymnal back next week. Um, <laughs> And also look around today. Is there somebody that you're like, oh, dude, I can't believe so-and-so's not here, right? Call them and tell them, I can't believe you're not here, and, and where are you? Invite somebody to church, right? Tell them, look, we want to hang out with you at church. We love you and God loves you, and we want to be together in this family that we're called into being, right? Yeah, and then we can tell them that Jesus loves them, right? And we can talk about being baptized. You know anybody that's getting baptized in two weeks? Who? Yeah, you're baptized, all right? But it's vows, it's commitments. And if you've joined this church, you've made some commitments. You've made those vows. You also, if you've ever seen anybody join a church, you have made vows too. You, you've made vows to, to, to be with them, to encourage and support them, to be there for them. Those are serious vows that we take. That's why our membership reception is very similar to the marriage covenant. Because literally you're getting married here. We are one beautiful, messed up, dysfunctional family by God's grace here. But we come together in this covenant. And the promises that we make are stronger than anything else that's going to come against us. Because the church is not built on you. The church is not built on me. The church is built on Jesus. And if Jesus has the foundation for the church. He says nothing, not even the gates of hell is going to be able right. to overcome my church. Amen. And that's who we are in Christ yes. Jesus. And we get to share this with other people, right? Yes. How, how do we not spend every not spend every day inviting somebody to come to church? No. Right? I mean, invite them to come. We're going to have some beautiful music, which is part of worship. Music is vital, I think, in our worship experience. Some Sundays you're going to hear good preaching, maybe, you know, but 
And if you think not, it's okay to fib just a little bit on that one. But you're going to love, you know. Tell them they're going to feel loved. Because I guarantee that's going to happen. Let them know that they are loved and they are welcomed and they are valued. As we move from membership to discipleship, we have what we call this confession of Peter that we read about today. Now, we often don't think of a confession the way that I'm going to use the word. So we're going to back up and talk about it. Sometimes confession means you got caught doing something, right? Now you need to come clean about it. And that's how we think of confession. Um, some of you, I know of your background, so you grew up with a much different understanding of a confessional experience than the way that we practice it now in the Protestant church. But see, a confession in that regard should be part of our daily prayer life, okay? There's every day we need to confess something to God, right? But this confession is an affirmation of faith. When Peter is saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, this is his faith affirmation. This is his Apostles' Creed. This is his Nicene Creed. This is his catechism that he says who Jesus is. And he just lays it out there for everybody to see and for everybody to hear. And the question, or his, his affirmation of faith came from the question of Jesus, who do people say that I am? So, let's break it down. Verse 16. you got your Bibles, check it out with me. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Stop here. Location is important. Alright? This is a map of the area. you got the little red arrow, and that's Caesarea Philippi. I think Jesus was there for a reason. I don't think Jesus is just walking along with his disciples, you know, and all who wander are not lost kind of thing. It's like, where are you going? Just wherever the wind takes us, man. We're just going. And somehow he ends up way north in Caesarea Philippi, and he's like, whoa, what are we doing here? Right? I don't think it happened that way. I think Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi for a reason. See, Caesarea Philippi is an interesting little city. It sits at the base of a mountain called Mount Hermon. Now, if you read one more chapter in Matthew's Gospel, you see where Jesus took some of his closest disciples. They head up onto that mountain, and he is transfigured. That the glory of God rocks their world in a way that it has never been seen in human history. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Moses and Elijah show up with him as well. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. So it's going to be a pretty important place. In Caesarea Philippi, they're at the base of this mountain right now. What's interesting is that the mountain has caves in it, and out of these caves come water. Now this water that comes out of the caves, if we go back to the other picture of the map, it actually fills the Sea of Galilee. Anybody ever heard of the Sea of Galilee? Oh, yeah. Pretty important place, okay, with biblical standards. Most of Jesus' ministry is done around this. The Sea of Galilee, the water runs out of it then, forming a river called the Jordan River. Jordan River is a pretty important place, too. This runs down into the Dead Sea. All of this water has its starting point at the caves at the base of Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi. So I think, I think Jesus brings them back to the source. I think Jesus brings them to the place that this entire region is going to have life because of this place is fueling the water for it. I think Jesus brings them to the headwaters. I think Jesus brings them to the source of this place 
because this place then gives life to the rest of the land. I think it's important because Jesus said twice in the Gospel of John, I am living water. One time it was a woman at a well that he met. You can see a little place there called Samaria. Samaria was kind of in between, right in the middle of the nation of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel is at the top, the southern kingdom Judah's at the bottom. The Samaritans are right in the middle. Um, the northerners didn't like them. The southerners didn't like them. It's kind of like being a Midwestern, I guess. You know, nobody, nobody likes the Samaritans. And Jesus meets this woman there at a well, and he was like, I can give you water to drink. You'll never be thirsty again. And she jumps on that wagon, right? Because she's like, I don't want to keep coming drawing water, right? If Jesus can take away my job, how cool is that? That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the living water that as Christians we experience. So that's part of our discipleship. We, we, we get to literally drink in this grace of Jesus into our lives and it sustains us. It quenches the thirst so that we're not out trying to get our thirst quenched in all these other different places. Okay? It's, it's the, the thirst-quenching, sustaining aspect of Jesus' ministry and His presence with us. So I think this place is important, Caesarea Philippi, because I believe that your position provides your perspective. Okay? A couple weeks ago, Heather and I left uh, Durham, which was hot and flat. And we were coming in to... Um, uh, Another part of North Carolina where we're going to stay at Ridgecrest, which is actually a Baptist-owned um, conference center, but they, would, they even give Methodist preachers a little discount there, so it was really nice. Um, and so we were coming there, and we're driving, and Heather's like, wow, isn't this beautiful, you know? And I'm driving on the interstate, okay, with a destination in mind. I wish, I wish that I could, when I was driving, just enjoy the ride, but if, if there's somewhere that we're going, we just need to get to that place. All right, once I get to that place, then we can enjoy it. But Heather's just like, oh, look at the, what do you see? And I was like, there's trees. There's a lot of trees. We're at Black Mountain, North Carolina. There's a lot of trees around. I get that. Because if, if, I could, if I could be, the only other place I would want to be appointed rather than Telford United Methodist Church would be at the beach. I'm just being honest with you. Does not go to the, the coast, um, so I don't think there's any way to, to work that into anything. But I think if I could live at the beach, that would be amazing. Heather is convinced that we would miss the mountains. I'm open to giving it a shot. Just to say, I mean, I'm okay. Let's just try and see how it works. But we're driving anyway. We're driving, and she's like, "Oh, look at the trees, or look how beautiful it is." I'm like, "It's trees, Heather." I, I, yes. We still got to get there. We got to get checked in. We got to. We got to do all these things. Well, after we were there, we were able to drive up to the top um, on this trail, and there was this lookout, and it was absolutely incredible, right? I mean, just <coughs> breathtaking. Well, I had a different perspective on those trees because of the position in which I was looking at them. See, sometimes, sometimes when we're down in here with it, it does just look like a bunch of trees. I get it. It's just, it's just one more road that we're just trying to get down in life. But when we're able to step back from that, and we're able to look at it from a different perspective, a different position, then, then I think it changes how we see it. 
when Jesus took these disciples to Caesarea Philippi, I imagine Jesus standing there with the sound of, of rushing living water behind him. And he's the epitome of living water standing right in front of them. And he asked the question, who do people say that I am? Now, he's not asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. Can we just get that out there? Jesus knows what is being said. He's not asking the question because somehow he's concerned about what the latest gossip is or what the latest tweets are saying about Jesus. He's not interested as much in that, but he does want to point out the fact that you need to hear what other people are saying about me. And that's why he asked the disciples. I did a, a, a lot of study on that this week, and I was very um, scholarly and academic how I handled it, so I Googled it, and I said, who is, is Jesus? And Google came back with some interesting answers. First, it said, Jesus was a good teacher. And, and I don't doubt that. I mean, read, read the Bible, Matthew, right? The Gospel of Matthew has more of what Jesus said than any other book of the Bible. You want to know what Jesus said, go to Matthew. Jesus was an incredible teacher, okay? But when I was at Science Hill High School, Miss Littleford was my French teacher. And I'm just saying, she was the year that I took, why I took four years of French, and she's the reason why I can't change the oil in my own car right now, because I didn't take that chocolate. She was a great teacher, um, or at least in my mind, being a 16-year-old boy, she was. Um, but because she's a great teacher doesn't mean that her and Jesus are somehow equal as teachers. So there's got to be more to it than that. There's another statement that said that Jesus is a good moral guy. In fact, it said he's a moral compass. I agree with that too, okay? When in your discipleship, following in the footsteps of Jesus, following along with Jesus, Jesus should help guide your decisions to be moral and ethical decisions that you are making because of the faith that you have in, in relationship with other people and to be a good steward of this world that God has entrusted to us for a little while. So, so yes, the moral and ethical aspect of it I think is important, but there's got to be more to it than that. In fact, one statement said, Jesus is a fictional character found on the pages of the Christian Bible. Right? Who do people say that Jesus is? I think we need to be aware of that. Not to come down with our self-righteous, condemning sledgehammer, you know? Like beating the little whack-a-mole. Boom! Wrong answer. Try again. That's not it. But it's understanding where people are to where we can engage them in conversation. Because you've got to be able to say who Jesus is to you. It's wonderful this other person can say who they think Jesus is. But then you have an opportunity to share who Jesus is to you. Now on this first question, the disciples didn't say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. At this point, John had already been beheaded. But, but John was believed he was going to be the forerunner, right? John was going to be the forerunner. Somebody's coming after John. So maybe, 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 this is, maybe Jesus is John re revived again. Other people say that he's Elijah. There's a deep um, Jewish tradition on why that could be thought. Read the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. You'll come across a passage of why people were looking for Elijah before they're looking for the Messiah. Others say um, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus for sure is a prophet. I read something I wanted to share with you. Written by another pastor named Adam Hamilton who said that we've created many Jesuses today. 
There's the patriotic Jesus who is wrapped in a flag saying all that we do must be blessed by God. There's conservative Jesus who is against budget increases and stands for family values. There's liberal Jesus who is suspicious of Wall Street and Walmart but is passionate about being tolerant and green and reducing our carbon footprint. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time no matter what except for people not as open-minded as you. There is touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians. There is prosperity Jesus who encourages us to be happy at all costs, tells us bigger is better, and a sure sign that we've been faithful is obtaining substantial debt. When I read that, it made me think, how are we answering this, man? Because there's all of those aspects that people are trying to, to force on Jesus, and then there's Jesus. Then there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the Jesus that we're talking about. That's the confession of faith that Peter makes when he says that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. See, to be able to answer that question, we've got to spend time with somebody. What if we had the question, who is Mark? Everybody almost in this room can answer something about that question. There's one person in the room, I hope, who can answer the question better than anybody else because she spends more time with him, you see where we're going, than anybody else. We can answer the question, who is Jesus? Because we are spending time with Jesus and Jesus is showing himself to us. He's allowing us to, to these constant creative glimpses of who he is. And I think the longer we walk with Jesus, the more that changes in who we say that Jesus is because we're saying it at a deeper level now. We've spent more time with Him. When you had asked me when I first met Heather the very first night, who, you know, who is Heather? She's hot. I don't know. How I answer that question now is much different because it's more personal in the relationship that I'm in with her because I spend time with her. I believe for us to answer the question, who is Jesus? means we have to be able to spend time with Him. There's a lot of words, names for God in the, in the Old Testament, in the original Hebrew, that begin with Jehovah. Perhaps some of these you are familiar with and you've heard them. If not, that's a Google search you can do, okay, that will yield some results. But I wonder if it would help us say who Jesus is to reclaim some of that tradition. Perhaps we could say that Jesus is Jehovah Jireh. That means God provides. Do you believe that God is going to provide for you in every and all situations? Abundantly more than we could ask or even think about or deserve. See, if Jesus does that, part of who Jesus is to us is Jesus is Jehovah Jireh. He is my provider. Or maybe we can say Jesus is Jehovah Rapha. That means He is my God who heals. Do you believe that Jesus is still in the healing business? Do you believe that miracles still happen because the hand of God reaches down supernaturally and touches people and transforms them? Do you believe that Jesus is still restoring people? If you do, maybe you can claim that as who you're, you say that Jesus is. Maybe you can say that Jesus is your Jehovah Kadesh, which means it is God who makes me holy. See, there's a reason why God said, be holy as I am holy. That's part of our discipleship focus. Where are we heading? It's being sanctified. We're heading towards holiness. And we're going to keep moving along that holiness route until the day that He comes in final victory, blowing the trumpet, and we feast at the heavenly banquet. Maybe you could say, Jesus is my Jehovah Shalom. God is my peace. 
One of the most beautiful things I have an opportunity to do is spend time with people prior to, or you know, before they, they leave this world and, and head into the next, before their address changes. It is a holy moment. And in almost all those situations, I feel this incredible peace of God before death. How is that? How is it that at one of the absolute worst points in our lives, getting ready to lose a loved one, that we could still experience peace of God? I think it's a peace that transcends or surpasses all understanding. I think it's because in that moment, the Lord is my shepherd when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It is because God said, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. That it's at that moment that God comes in, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus and the angels fill those hospital rooms. Jesus and the angels fill that graveside to remind us we are not alone in this. This is a difficult time. But God is greater than even death. I wonder if we could say that He is our Hosanna, that He is our Yeshua, that He is Jesus, which means the God who saves. That's the purpose of this, right? Amen. We do not come here on a Sunday morning so you can feel a little bit better about yourself or feel worse, I don't know. But anyway, you don't come here just for the feeling of it and then we go out and we're like, well, you know, check. Yeah. Right? It's done until next Sunday. Yeah. Now I've got six more days for whatever. We come here because we are the body of Christ. We're coming here to, to remember who we are and to remember whose we are. So Simon, Simon gets a new name here. Did y'all catch that? His new name is now Peter. And in Greek, the Greek word for rock is Petros, which is also a really cool band, right? Google that one later. Um, and, and, and Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. Here's what I think. I don't think it's on Peter as a person that the church was built. I think it's on Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's on that that the church is built. Are you with me? So the church is built on Jesus, right? And I wonder, why do we stress about so much church stuff? I mean, not necessarily here. Maybe you've heard it in other places before. We don't get some money coming in. Church is just going to have to close. We don't get some kids in. The church is just going to die. I just want to remind us, the church, the church does not belong to Telford. The church does not belong to Methodists or Baptists or Catholics. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. There's a reason why Jesus said, this is my church. And it's on this confession of faith that I am founding my church. And nothing is going to stand against my church, not even the gates of hell, until I return and I redeem the bride back to the groom. Until I sanctify you and bring you back. So I do away with the evil and bring you back into the way that you were created to be. So I think that's good for us to remember. That the church is built on Jesus. The church finds its identity in Jesus. But we find our identity in Christ as well. On Monday, I came in here. I pulled out our baptismal font. Went up to Asbury. Pulled theirs out. Dusted it off. And then Monday night, at camp meeting. Um, and I told Heather, I'm going to use the baptismal fonts Sunday. Because uh, she, she knew she wasn't going to be here. Monday night at camp meeting, Bishop Graves asked a question. 
And the question he asked at camp meeting was, how many churches have water in your baptismal font right now? And he asked a rhetorical question because he knew the answer, right? None. Do you know why we don't put water in our baptismal font? Not bacteria, but skinny. Because <laughs> we don't expect anybody to get baptized. Right? We're just coming in here to do our thing and then we're going to leave. Okay? I mean, we have our order of worship. We know what's going to happen in this church service. I wonder, I guess to start with, let me say as your pastor, I apologize. I've been here too long to not have water in this every single week. Because I believe that every Protestant church should reclaim a part of that old tradition of having some water in the font. I believe for two reasons. One, because God may show up in the life of somebody today and they're like, I need to be washed in that living water. I need forgiven of my sin. I need to accept this free gift of grace. You know, God cleanse me. And we've got a baptismal font ready to go. I also believe it's important for those of you that have been baptized. So if you've been baptized, raise your hand. To remember who you are. That first song we sang by Martin Luther. It's written at a very tough time in his life. This guy who led the Protestant Reformation. And he would get so stressed out, he said, in his life. Anybody can, can identify him. That there would be this thing, he's like, man, this is stressing me out. I don't even know what to do about this thing. And he's worried about it. And he's anxious about it. And he said he would need to go and just touch the water, put it on his forehead, and say, Mark, remember you are baptized. Today, we're going to sing a closing hymn called Just As I Am. That's the way we all come to the water, but I can tell you that we leave the water changed. We're leaving in this growth in our discipleship. We are walking with Jesus down this path. To where? I don't know exactly. But I know that if Jesus is our GPS, that we're in good hands. Today as we sing this closing hymn, I want to invite you, if you are baptized, to come and, and touch that water. To remember your baptism and to be thankful. To remember that you are signed, sealed, and one day will be delivered in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. If today's a day where you're like, I've never even made that confession for myself. I don't care how long you've been going to church. If today's the day you say, I can't, I haven't made that, but I want to today. I don't know exactly all that it means, but I want to step out in faith. I'm going to ask you to come and pray with me about it. Maybe, maybe there's somebody that you know, a family member, a child, a grandchild. You need to, to, to claim the confession of faith for them until they get in a place that they can do it on their own. Then I want to invite you to come and to pray and to lift up that name to Jesus. That right now, today, this fresh water is going to start flowing in their life. It's all these ways that we can come together as the church built on Christ Jesus. We pray with me, gracious and loving God, we thank you for this living water that is poured out for us. God, I thank you for your redemption and your grace in our life. And today, Lord, you know right now what's going on in the hearts of each person. You know how we answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Help us, God. Help us say that you are my Lord. Help us say you are my Savior. Help us say you are my peace. You are my redemption. You are my strength. You are a mighty fortress because you're my God. 
Help us claim that promise in the wonderful and saving name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Will you stand with me as we sing? The font is open and ready.
reminder of the life that God has called you into, a reminder of the discipleship in which you're leading. I know that some of you have already expressed an interest of baptism and joining the church, and we have that planned, and it's wonderful. Today, if there is someone that you want to confess this faith for until they can, their name is on your heart right now. Just raise your hand. God knows, God knows the name when lifting them up to God's grace and His throne now. If today is a day where you're like, today I am accepting this gift for myself. Today is a day I've made this confession of faith. I want to give my life to Christ. I want to be able to experience peace in my life. Just raise your hand real quick too so we can pray. Wonderful. Gracious and loving God, you've seen the hands, you know what's on the heart. If we have touched the water, God, we're reminded of your love for us. God, help us go as disciples to live into the life that you have called us in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as our acolytes come forward, we extinguish the light on this table. We extinguish this light not because that the light of Christ has gone out. Because that's an ever-burning fire, right? We extinguish it here because now we are the ones that God is sending out into the world. So take this light back into your family. Take this light back into your schools. Take this light back into your workplace. And as we go from this place, may we go in that grace, love, and knowledge that we are the light of the world because Jesus is the light in us. Amen? And be blessed.